Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Lindhurst, New Jersey, formerly known as Kingsland, is a township of about 22,000 people on the Meadowlands. It's what some would consider a nice, ordinary Jersey community. However, what many might not know about Lindhurst is that it was not only home to about 22,000 people, it housed the Canadian car and foundry plant, which would be used as a fairly large munitions factory. And this inconspicuous munitions factory ended up playing a fairly significant role in World War I, but the bigger story is that it became the target of one of the worst acts of foreign sabotage to ever take place in American soil. Find out what happened and who we are to blame for this explosive sabotage on this episode of The Missing Chapter. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome, everybody, to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. And today, Phil, we are brewing a great cup of coffee here. We got the Utica Roastings Peanut Butter Cup. And let me tell you, once again, they hit the mark. It is spot on peanut butter cup through and through. Um, so, hey, we're, we're really excited for this episode today. Uh, but before we, we get to today's episode, we want to just talk about some of the new things that are coming down the pike here. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. And it is a good cup of coffee. And I hope you're listening to us someplace warm because where Phil and I are, it's negative 20 this morning. Yes. Um, so the coffee's definitely doing more than just waking us up. It's also keeping us warm. But thank you for listening. It's 2022. And as Phil said, you know, Phil and I are always trying to recreate ourselves and build off of what works and maybe kind of modify and come up with new ideas. And we're, we're trying to implement that with the Missing Chapter podcast as well. You know, Aiden Schulte was one of our uh, earliest guests. He actually had his episode debuted on January 1st, and he was our first student to do a, a full-length podcast. Phil and I have some ideas that we're going to be introducing to you guys in the weeks to come. So keep listening. Our support has been phenomenal you know, from the get-go, and, yeah. and I think people are really going to respond well to what we have. Um, one of the ideas is, is missing chapter mysteries. And I think that, you know, just to kind of throw that out there, I think people will be interested about it, and we'll, we'll be getting into that a little bit deeper later on. Um, we've been redesigning and reworking with our uh, website. Um, you know, Phil and I, first and foremost, Phil, you and I are teachers. And we, we've created some lesson plans and some things that uh, if you're a teacher listening at home, uh, you might be able to use in the classroom. Feel free. Visit our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com. Check out the teacher's lounge and see what we have to offer. And maybe it's something that, uh, that you could use in your classroom. And it's one of those things where we talk about uh, with, with uh, teachers across the country uh, when we do webinars and trainings like this is uh, one of the best things about this this podcast that we never really anticipated was the the sharing app, uh, part of this, where you can share stories, of course, but then 
you know, share some some tactics that we can use in class with other teachers and with other uh, historians throughout the country. So yeah. this is this has been a great part of that. Yeah, the collaboration really has been uh, a fantastic you know piece to what we've been able to do, Phil. And in, by all means, if there's something that you want to ask us, if there's something that you want to incorporate in your classroom, we're easily accessible. You know, you can email us. You can go uh, contact us at social media, uh, the Facebook or um, or Instagram. Um, but reach out to us. But you know, it's. We love doing this, and we're starting to see, too, in that it can also serve a purpose. I mean, kids want to be getting involved in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it can help you in the classroom, you know, that's so much the better. Absolutely. Yeah. So the themissingchapterpodcast.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, check out the resources. Um, so today, Phil, yeah. in the intro, we talked about a very normal community, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and uh, I guess the basic sense of the word, 22,000 people. Uh, you know, not a whole lot going on, but it's just a you know, nice Jersey community. Right. And uh, we pride ourselves in, and I know people get probably tired of hearing us say this. We never share our stories with one another. Right. And it's the truth. Right. You gave me probably a little bit more to this story than you have in the past with some of your other stories. I have never <laughs> heard of this story. <laughs> it almost sounded, I'm like, really, this is completely fictionalized, right. Phil. Like how, how could we not, have heard about this. Yes. But this is one of those stories as you go through and in the back of your mind, you're like, I think I know where this story is leading, but it can't possibly be. It's probably, you're probably picking up on, on actually where the story is taking you down the path that is yeah. taking you down. So if, if there's something you're, you're thinking, it's just, it's too outlandish. It's probably correct. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So, okay. So we, we have the idea of this town, um, you know, it's not enormous in size and it's, it's pretty basic, but there's one main factory, uh, you know, the Canadian um, foundry, car and foundry plant, uh, which is eventually going to turn into a munitions factory, as we mentioned. So why, why do it then? Well, the plant manufactured munitions for export, okay, to uh, some of our greatest allies, Great Britain and Russia at the time. So even though, remember, the U.S. hasn't entered the war yet, Okay, in World War One, we're still supplying our allies with vital resources. So, you know, throughout the country, any any wartime situation, these factories, you know, put pause on what they're usually doing and, and create munitions, just like we're doing right now. We we stopped some, uh, you know, Ford stopped their manufacturing at the beginning of the pandemic so they could make ventilators, that kind of thing. So it's it's a wartime production here. But as one can imagine, anytime you have um, munitions manufacturing, there, there must be some strict, strict safety protocol, uh, of course. And, you know, not only how to handle and manufacture these munitions, but there's also very redundant safety measures and precautions that employees are trained upon to know what to do, if, of course, if anything went wrong. Well, January 11th, 1917, let's just say something went wrong. Okay. A man by the name of Theodore Wozniak, and that, that'll be the focus. He'll be our, the focus of our, our episode today. Showed up for his job uh, to work at his workbench. Typical day. One of the 48 workbenches available at the factory. Normal Thursday. Everything's kind of, you know, running the same, same thing day in and day out. Wozniak came in and started to clean artillery shells. That was typically his job. Now, it sounds dangerous in and of itself, but the intricate detail here is shocking and, I don't know, obviously pretty much ridiculously dangerous as this might sound is that in order to properly clean the munitions, the process involved, ready, using gasoline soaked rags, which to me 
is like the last thing you would want to bring into a munitions factory, right? Let's bring in something that's highly flammable. Yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. So I think you see where I'm going here. Well, on the bench in front of each employee was a pan of gasoline uh, and a small rotating machine operated by a belt. Now, immediately as I'm doing research on this, I'm thinking, okay, you're not only you're bringing gasoline-soaked rags in, now you have a machine uh, with a, a rotating belt. There's got to be some sort of friction there. I mm -hmm. it just... I cannot believe this is the process they used. Well, here's the about four-step cleaning process that would um, that would make sure that these ammunitions are, are clean. So number one, the shells were dusted with a brush. Okay. Two, a cloth moistened in the pan of gasoline was wrapped around a foot-long piece of wood. The shell was then placed in the rotating machine, and the wood was inserted into the shell as it turned. Number four, a dry cloth was wrapped around the stick, and the shell was dried in a similar fashion. All right. And I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. Gasoline and ammunition don't pair well together. And my gosh, is there any other cleaning agent you could use? Very little room for error. Right. I, I mean, mean, this is not a job where you're going to have a, a second where you're daydreaming and not focused on what you're doing. Right. And I'm also thinking about on how unhealthy this must be. Oh, that's a great point. Day in and yeah. day out. Not only being around the materials that go into making ammunition, but now gasoline. Yeah. Like it, the, the, the people who worked in these factories in many ways were really, I mean, supporting the war by, you know, being under unhealthy work environments. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, in, in, and right now, I'm, I'm sure the listeners are probably thinking, all right, okay, well, you put two and two together, there right. must be some sort of major accident. Well, it's not necessarily an accident. Something took place, this really unfortunate event took place, but let's just say it was no accident. So come to find out, Theodore Wozniak isn't who he says he is. Around 3.40 p.m., a fire broke out in a large pile of rags next to his workbench, and he responded by pouring clear liquid onto the fire. So there was a witness, his boss, by the name of Morris Chester Musson, uh, witnessed this whole process, found it extremely suspicious, of course, to say the least, especially because, as I mentioned earlier, there were very, very clear protocols and precautions to take if anything went wrong. One of those safety precautions stated specifically that all fires, especially in this building, building 30, were to be extinguished using buckets of sand. Mm -hmm. You're not just, you know, throwing right. water on a fire. That so makes no, sense. You know, yep. Right. So not only did investigators say later on that Wozniak intentionally set a pile of rags on the fire, but his boss, the witness, Morris Mosin, uh, saw it take place with his, you know, before his very eyes. And then later on, as we'll talk about in a written affidavit, Morris said, uh, quote, whatever the liquid was, it caused the fire to spread very rapidly. It was my firm conviction from what I saw, and I stated, that the place was set on fire purposely. So it was obvious to Mussin that uh, Wozniak was using some sort of, I don't know, like an accelerant to quickly build the inferno. Sure enough, I mean, put two and two together, the fire spread immediately. And before Mussin could really do anything to mitigate the spread, multiple fires broke out. Uh, unfortunately, that day, there were some very high winds. And uh, that carried the flames to the rest of the other buildings of the plant. Gunpowder, TNT, and ready for this, an estimated 500,000 artillery shells were stored there. So if you're, if you're going to locate a factory that, that really want to make a, a, a booming, yeah, <laughs> yeah, th yeah, this is probably the best one. Half a million artillery right. shells being stored there. He chose a good target. Yeah, absolutely. So the fire spreads, as you can imagine, sets off a series of explosions scattered across 40 buildings. The fires uh, quickly burn the buildings, that you know, wooden walls, exploding shells, piercing aluminum roofs, um, as it all kind of converged into this towering black cloud that was visible from Manhattan, actually. 
the rattling and shaking of the explosions were so extensive that reports from Yonkers to Staten Island of the ground shaking came through and a nearby train line was ruptured, uh, which ran about th- 300 feet or so from the plant. 1,400 employees there that day. They hurried out of the building uh, for obvious reasons with no concern really was what was in their way, including a fence that they jumped over. And how about this? Barbed wire didn't stop them. They were climbing over that, forced to climb over that. Uh, Some workers ran up a a hill, a nearby hill, which is now downtown Lyndhurst. But it didn't seem like much of improvement because artillery shells, 500,000 artillery shells are flying all around. The, The shells are falling into homes and businesses and igniting fires all over town. So you can just imagine in your um, in your mind right now the the chaos that's ensuing once that that soaked rag was ignited. A reporter from the New York Times said this quote: "Thousands of these missiles were flung aloft, and for minute after minute the sky rained red and golden fire, illuminating the darkening meadows with a weird glare that threw into relief the tiny figures of fugitives racing, tumbling, falling across the marshes in a mad scramble." to get from beneath the hall, excuse me, the hail of molten metal. So this just fury, I mean, it, it's like a war zone, right? Really, right. you know, so, and, and what do you do? The only way you can, it's, it's fight or flight. There's no fighting this. You're just escaping at right. any means. And no one's necessary. expecting it either. You said it's a regular Thursday, right. right? You know, this is, this is a plant. People come to work. In. You don't expect a war zone. Yeah. And here's a little bit of a twist here. So there's, there's inmates actually living in a nearby prison. Um, and some hospitals, uh, sanitariums uh, also responded to the explosions, of course. Uh, here's the odd twist, though, to a really terrifying story. There's a lot of people inside the Hudson County Hospital for the Insane. Mm. They believed the towering black cloud rising over their heads signaled the beginning of the rapture. So the leaders of the hospital were pretty worried that this would basically amount to a, a riot. So guess what they did? They threw a party. All right. And you're probably thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 hold on. a party. What, what, what's the meaning behind that? Well, if, if you're in the house of the insane, I guess you got to think like one. Here we go. They rallied the inmates into a big lecture hall, brought in candy, large tubs of ice cream, and explained that the explosions across the river were just fireworks to celebrate the end of the Great War. Well, Phil, they bought it. The lie worked. The residents were calmed, uh, even though fires and explosions raged all night and actually into the morning. Um, I'll give you a quick quote by the uh, warden of the county penitentiary, and I think this is pretty good. It was the most wonderful, but also the most terrifying spectacle I've ever seen, uh, he told the Times. I don't want to see any more fireworks as long as I live. And I think that's probably a good indication of what most people felt at the time. Right. And and with the destruction you just described, aside from the, the few people who actually saw the sabotage taking place, the majority of people are still... Uh, unaware of exactly what this caused or, or what caused the explosion. They know that they live in a town near this plant. So I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting they think it has something to do with this plant, but a random fire, right. some sort of a mistake that was made. Yeah, there. that's a great question. So in all accounts, most people on the outer outer portion of this mm-hmm. knew something was happening. Right. You know, they, they knew it was either an, an attack, maybe. Um, a lot of people thought it was an earthquake. Uh, some people thought, Hey, well, I mean, you're feeling this tremor into New York city, you know right. what I mean? So you saw the smoke and then eventually people started figuring out, um, that it was some sort of accident, but as we know, it wasn't an accident at all. Um, but I think that the people within the town, the 22,000 mm-hmm. residents at first, they knew it was some sort of 
they, they at least expected it was some sort of accident. But now uh, they're starting to figure out that it was it was something to do with the plant. Yeah. Right. And if you think about this in the context of what was going on in Europe, like you said, I mean, we weren't directly, you know, involved in the war. It was right. more of a, a supportive role that we were playing. But in the context of what was going on in Europe, this had to be pretty terrifying. For oh, people. absolutely. You know, we're on the East Coast. Um, I, I think most people during this time would have thought if there was going to be an attack, the East Coast was the target, obviously. Right. right. So, yeah, this had to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the. I mean, just the fact that it's it's one of the worst sabotage stories of World War One. That's mm-hmm. that's quite unbelievable. But I think one of the most unbelievable aspects of this is actually probably the most fortunate is that no one died. Yeah. You have five hundred thousand artillery shells, and not one of them struck its target. And it was granted that, I mean, there was no target to be struck. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, there there was all sorts of bombs going around um, all over the place. It, it, it contacts trains. It, it goes into buildings, and it's it's going five feet past. Uh, you know, the, the clerk, it's just, it's, it's an unbelievable story of, you know, accidents of sabotage, but just fortunate uh, yeah. that no one is, is uh, no one had perished from this. It's, yeah, it's it unbelievable. much, much worse. Absolutely. Right. So I guess the question is, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot had to do with the fact that the boss saw it happen and hurried everyone out. But a big portion of that uh, came from a switchboard operator at the plant, a woman by the name of Tessie McNamara stayed at her post even as shells were hitting her building. She heroically called the other buildings in the complex, told the people to evacuate. Her office caught on fire when the first artillery shell crashed through the wall and unbelievably the shell passed once again five feet from her head, but she didn't move. Instead, she stayed seated at her telephone switchboard and called every building inside the big ammunition factory in the metal ends, urging everyone to flee. And her her quote was, and I, even, I was going to consider this uh, for a title here, Uh, For the episode, get out or go up, Mm -hmm. McNamara screamed into the receiver as the world around her, of course, began to explode. Um, Unfortunately, she eventually fainted at her post from all the, uh, you know, crazy excitement. Um, She had to be carried out by firefighters while the entire facility was destroyed. But here we are over a century later, still talking about Tessie McNamara, who is remembered as the hero of the Kingsland explosion, uh, one, one of the largest acts of foreign sabotage ever committed in American soil. But I think after the break, though, let's focus on the suspect, someone we mentioned earlier, but with no definitive evidence, the worker Theodore Wozniak. Who was he? Where was he from? And the answers to those questions will inevitably shape who the United States sets their scopes on. All right, Phil. So I have a lot of questions for you, but you know, as we're sitting here during the break, the thing that kind of struck me with the last story that you mentioned with Tessie McNamara, it was very reminiscent of the John George Phillips story that I did for episode, or excuse me, season one, the uh, man responsible for the telegraph of the Titanic. Oh and yeah. You yeah. stay at your post, you do your job, and in the process, you could you know conceivably sacrifice yourself, but you're trying to save other people. So I think that that was a great side note to you know, to all of that. And the fact that no one died in the destruction that you recounted is remarkable in itself. I think my question, and I think this is where you're headed next, is the motive for this. And you said no one passed away, fortunately. Is this just someone who's trying to help the Germans by crippling one of the biggest munitions plant, supporting the Allies, supplying the Allies? And I'm interested to see, too, is he just a German sympathizer? Hmm. Um, you know, or is there a bigger story behind this one individual? All right. 
So these are all these are all perfect questions. So I listen, appreciate that. No, no problem. <laughs> I love that correlation, by the way, yeah. from the season one. But this guy is definitely funded by the Germans, okay. which and, is amazing. Which is amazing yeah. in and of itself. So I think the fact that the fortunate part about this, of course, as we mentioned, uh, is that no one died. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not going to give a lot of, um, I don't know, motivation for the United States to declare war just yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's going to be one of the pieces of the puzzle, but that nobody talks about. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the, maybe the a lot of people talk about the Zimmerman telegram and the Lusitania being the you know the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. But personally, after reading all the the insight in this, it kind of seems like this was on the table too mm -hmm. that no one really talked about because um, Germany never fully admitted to it. But there is a piece of admission that we're going to talk about in a, in a second. So, and Phil, this is terrorism on American soil. 100%. You know, yeah. I mean, so if there's anything to push us towards war, the fact that the Germans are, are having people carry out acts of terrorism. Right. In American towns. Yes. I yeah. think would have convinced the American people that war is the right thing to do. And unfortunately, if, if a group of people had died, mm -hmm. then I think this would have, excuse my terms, but blown up. Yeah. You know, this would have, this yeah. really would have said, uh, given motivation in the United States, like, Hey, we're declaring war now. Right. All these other reasons were, were, were good enough, but this is, this is the thing that's like, Hey, this is the spark. And, you know, like yeah. you would see in a powder keg moment, but right. this right here, I think is, is something that, um, I, there's so much to this. So let's break this down. Let's kind okay. of dig deep into this because remember in January of 1917, when this took place, world war one was in progress. Mm -hmm. But you remember the United States had not yet entered the war. Okay. The country was still assisting its allies, like you had mentioned, with war supplies, munitions, including shells, sh uh, shell cases, shrapnel, powder were shipped from Kingsland um, from over 100 different factories. And the foundry that they assembled um, at this foundry, excuse me, they assembled munitions for shipments too specifically to Russia. Mm. All right. So since it was producing 3 million shells per month, Wow. The factory was definitely a worthy objective for, for Germany. Now, for me, I, I think it's it's mind boggling that a little town in New Jersey mm -hmm. would be on Germany's radar. I, I would love to know, and I, I haven't found a single resource on this. How the heck did the Germans know about this little town, this little munitions factory? Well, and, and you know, it's funny you brought that up because I was I was mentioning to you earlier, how long had this individual been embedded in the United States? I mean, had, had he been going about this routine and working at this plant for an extended period of time, just buying his time, waiting for this opportunity? And I'd be interested, we'd have to do some research on this. How does this plant's production compare? Mm. I mean, was this, even though it was in New Jersey, one of the bigger, you know, ammunition plant in this area? And that's yeah. what kind of put a bullseye on it. I don't think it was the okay. one of the biggest, um, but it was certainly because they were funding maybe Russia specifically. Okay. I think that had, that had a little sense. bit to do with it mm -hmm. uh, because of Germany's and, and Russia's relationship. I also I also think that he he had been here for a while. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I love the movie Salt right. with Angelina Jolie. Yeah, it's kind of reminiscent of that. You know, like he's he's been there. He's kind of infiltrated into the American culture, that kind of thing. And and one of the things that any spy is going to be good at is being low key and just going about your business. It's a right. normal right. Thursday. No one would ever expect anything. Um, but the fact that the boss was there at the time and noticed because he's so strict in his protocol, I think that was one of the things that mm -hmm. that really set this off. Um, and that would make sense, too. If the Germans had this plan, then you look to somebody, you know, who has been in the United States for a long period right. of time, but still who feels that loyalty. Right. What better person to carry out this plan? And you know what 
there's no better time than now. We could actually look up some of the census records and right. stuff like that to see how long he was in the United States. Yeah. We might have to do a follow up on that because that's something That'd I don't be really know. Yeah. Um, so as we start getting into this, I, I think the Wozniak Germany uh, relationship is really going to start to come forward. So the Kingsland plant was completely destroyed, of course. After this, the police and federal investigators start to uncover the source of the fire, which mm-hmm. it, we know now is is uh, pretty obvious, especially with the boss's eyewitness testimony. It started at Wozniak's uh, workbench in Building 30. So they've, they've certainly confirmed that. Um, and without the eyewitness testimony, it would be confirmed. Right. But this is just it's corroborated evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was later revealed that he was on the payroll of a German spy named Frederick Hinch who had paid him to set the fire. All right. So now, not only do you have eyewitness testimony, um, you have uh, scientific evidence because they they've located where the fire started. And now you have uh, a money trail. All right. So Hinch ran a network of saboteurs along the East coast, which we would find out decades later. He recruited a German national named Kurt Thummel, who changed his name to Charles Thorne. Hinch instructed Thorne to obtain employment where, at the factory. Mm. Thorne was hired as assistant employment manager. In this position, he facilitated the hiring of several operatives sent by Hinch to infiltrate the factory. One of those employees, Theodore Wozniak. Okay. Makes sense. So a lot of things went into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, Germany really pulled out all the stops to get someone inside. Uh, he was also receiving $40 a week from Frederick Hinch. So once again, there's a second money trail. But we now have proof. We didn't then, but now we do. So that may be why no one has really heard of this, this story before. And it, and this wasn't proof, but it was enough for the United States to pretty much formulate mm-hmm. suspicion at the very least uh, of Germany before entrance into World War I. But it wasn't until 1935 that the American government produced proof that the Germans had destroyed and altered evidence establishing its plans for the attacks. And then in August 1942, FBI agents finally tracked down and arrest Wozniak, who was working as a grocery store clerk and ready, living in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Investigators obtained a written statement by Wozniak in which he finally admitted that he had been paid and trained by German spies. The German, gov- German government, though, never admitted responsibility for the attacks. But here's the catch. In 1953, it agreed to pay the United States $50 million, or about $455 million in today's dollars, to settle claims for the Kingsland explosion, as well as an earlier... Um, attack called the Black Tom explosion in Jersey City, which we might have to do a follow-up because I don't think a lot of people have heard of the Black Tom explosion. But wouldn't you say, even though Germany said, hey, we, we, we're going to deny this altogether, right. you're going to pay the yeah. American government $50 million, $455 million in today's money? Right. That's your admission. Right there, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they're just trying to save face and save any sort of international outcry, even, even at this stage in history. Right. That that would have, you know, um, led to, but, and to think that he lived in the United States beyond that. Yeah. It, is pretty amazing too. As a grocery store. As a, uh, yeah. So yeah. you're going into this grocery store, never realizing that this was one of the worst right. saboteurs of on American soil. Amazing. Um, amazing. And the black Tom explosion, the bomb at, at the factory came six months after this black Tom Island uh, explosion in Jersey city. But both attacks were part of a campaign of covert bombings at chemical factories and ammunition depots uh, across the United States, once again, organized by the German government to slow American arms shipment to Russia and Great Britain. Um, And I think that kind of answers at least part of your question, too, 
as, you know, why this factory specifically? Um, did they make ammunition beyond that? Were they able to recover after think, the explosion or did it put them out permanently? I think it put them out permanently. Yeah, it would yeah. make sense based yeah. on what you described, right? Now, the Germans, this mm -hmm. is hilarious. The Germans make their last payment in 1979 specifically for this. So once again, we, I mean, we talk, we talk to our students about Germany paying reparations all the time. And I think right. their last payment was what, like 2016 or yep. something like that. But for this specifically, they ended up making their last payment in 1979, um, which they still deny involvement to this day. But this is the kicker. Even after denying involvement, the United States had enough evidence to think Germany was a legitimate threat. So remember, this attack took place in January 1917. The United States entered World War I in April of 1917. Mm -hmm. So once again, the attacks combined with Germany sinking the Lusitania uh, in 1915 eventually forced President Woodrow Wilson to end America's position of neutrality, enter, uh, entering World War I on the side of the Allies. So to put it all together, most people know that we entered World War I because of the Zimmerman telegram, unrestricted submarine warfare, and the sinking of Lusitania. But what most people don't know is that the Kingsland explosion was another reason on the table of why the United States believed that they should enter World War I. So the next time you hear history teachers talk to you about the reasons for the U.S. entering World War I, make sure you include the sabotage that we know of today as the Kingsland explosion. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>